Hello and welcome everybody to ICMDA webinars. I'm Dr. Peter Saunders, the Chief Executive of the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. And we're really privileged today to have Dr. Vinod Shah back. Uh, Vinod was my predecessor uh, at ICMDA as CEO and uh, I've learned so much from, from him. And he's always really stimulating and challenging to listen to. So uh, the subject of personhood, a Christian understanding. What is personhood? When does it begin? Do individuals have intrinsic worth or value and how are we different from the animals? So Vinod is going to tackle these questions and explore the history of personhood, its origins and popular thought, and most importantly, what scripture has to teach us on the subject. Dr. Vinod Shah was converted originally from a Jain background, and his passion is serving God through medical mission. He did his MBBS, MS, and MCH at Christian Medical College, Valore in Tamil Nadu in the south of India. And he served as executive director of the Emmanuel Hospital Association uh, in New Delhi. He was uh, later the head of distance education at CMC Valore. And from 2014 to 2019, he was the CEO of ICMDA, so uh, my predecessor. He's married to Shalini Shah, and they're blessed with three children. Two of them are working in North America and one in China. So, Vinod, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time again today, and we look forward to hearing you on personhood, a Christian understanding. Thank you. Good afternoon, folks. I'm going to talk to you about personhood. It's a subject I became interested in, uh, especially because of the fact that I come from a giant background. Um, is there a difference between animalhood and personhood? It's a very important question for giants because uh, of the fact that uh, there was a challenge of meat eating, the fact of transmigration of souls, you know, people's souls go into animals and stuff like that. These are all part of the karmic understanding in the Indian cosmology. And so this was a subject I have been interested in. And again, in the West, there are questions about personhood, you know, when did it start and how do you define it? And so I wanted to know what the scriptures say about personhood. <clears throat> uh, some of the themes that we are going to discuss, I'm going to make a, uh, do a brief introduction and then try and define personhood. And then we'll talk about the, the debate, raging debate about when does personhood begin? And then I will talk about this great temptation to reduce personhood into its components and try and differentiate between persons and individuals and talk about what sustains, what nurtures and nourishes personhood and what destroys it. And then, uh, the relationship between personhood and freedom 
and then about the principle of intrinsic worth, intrinsic worth uh, and then the consequences of an inadequate understanding of both the above and then the animals and personhood and some dangerous scenarios that we could face if personhood is not properly fully understood as in the scriptures. Of all the mysteries engulfing mankind, the greatest mystery is the nature of personhood. What is a human being? What are we? <clears throat> um, uh, this man, Parmenides, he uh, defined the science of being as ontology. So this is a ontological subject. Tertullian was the first one to call the Trinity as the community of three persons. And because man was made in the image of the Trinity, he was also called a person. Uh, now, how do we understand personhood? You know, there are two, two ways to know. There are uh, anthropocentric definitions, you know, man-made definitions. They can be scientific resolutions, you know, studying the brain, the EEG, the behavior, uh, and uh, sociological and philosophical ways of understanding definitions. And there are many uh, <coughs> attempts made to understand personhood in this way. But we are trying to see what God has revealed in the scriptures about personhood. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> anthropocentric approaches, uh, they have often tried to say, make a difference between human beings and persons. They have said that people who are unconscious, uh, babies, uh, fetuses especially, they are human, but they are not persons. So there, are, there is that distinction made by the secular philosophers. Others have made a checklist of faculties. You know, you tick off uh, a box of faculties, uh, whether he can understand, whether he can be creative uh, and stuff like that, conscious. So if, if you can list off the checklist, then you are a person. Uh, Peter Singer, he's a very acclaimed philosopher. He says anyone who is conscious is a person. And so according to him, uh, mammals are conscious. And so according to him, animals are also persons. There are others who say persons are those people who have rights. Uh, others have focused on cognition, which means that if you are completely uh, uh, if you are a complete moron and if you cannot understand anything, then you are short of being a full person. There are many uh, 
metaphysical definitions. There are uh, people who say pe persons are those who have morals. Uh, they are all anthropocentric approaches, not necessarily scriptural approaches. Uh, in Genesis 1, there were two times when God had to speak twice. On the third day, he spoke twice. And then on the sixth day, he spoke twice. On the third day, he first said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in, unto one place in the dry land. So he created the, the uh, non-living, the material world first. And then he had to speak again when he had to bring forth vegetation and plants, which, is, which are living things. In other words, uh, God had to use one computer language or one kind of language to create the material world. And then he had to use another kind of language to create vegetation, living things. What I'm trying to drive home is the fact that because God had to speak again and had to intervene again to continue with the creation, it was not really possible for the material world to evolve into life. <clears throat> and then on the sixth day, again, he spoke again. In verse 24, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock, creeping things. So, you know, the animal world was created first on the sixth day. And then God had to speak again. And he said, let us make man in our image. In other words, <coughs> God had to use one, like one kind of language to create animals. And then he had to use a different kind of language to create <coughs> man. Because it was not simply possible for the animal world to evolve into human beings. <coughs> And then the only time God spoke directly to his creation and the only time he blessed was when he created human beings. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. I'll come back to this later. You know, this is an example of the fact that God had a relationship with man. You know, the fact that he blessed them and because he talked to them uh, shows that he had a relationship with man that he did not have with any of the rest of the creation. And then other reasons why human beings were unique. In 2.7 Genesis, it says, from the dust, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the only creation which had God's breath. And human beings were amphibians. You know, they 
they had a bit of heaven in them, the, the God's breath, and they had uh, the dust, you know, they had the earth in his making. So he straddled heaven and earth. And uh, that is the reason why man was made the CEO of creation. You know, he was made the ruler or the governor of creation. <coughs> you know, CEOs are people who manage governance on one side and who manage uh, the admin and the management on the other. And they are in between. And man, being an amphibian, he, he had the spirit of God in him, a bit of God in him, and he understood uh, the material world because he himself was made from the material world. And so he was made the CEO of creation. And so he was completely unique. And again, the one flesh principle was only for the human person. You know, he did not tell the animals, please mate and be one flesh. Uh, for them, sexuality, animal sexuality was extremely different from human sexuality. So we cannot copy animal sexuality and bring it into the human uh, environment. <clears throat> uh, this is what I think. I think uh, a human person is more than what you see. You know, what we see is a body, uh, the dust, but there is something more to his body. We really do not know what it is, but there's a lot of uh, heaven in him, you know, a lot of uh, the image of God in him. Now, that they are not separate like you see in this picture, but they are integrated into an indivisible whole. So uh, when you see a person, you just see some material thing, but remember that he is uh, far more than what you see. There is something very grand and magnificent about a person. We will come to know this when there is the resurrection, we will just marvel at what a human person is and how he is made. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about in the secular world about when personhood begins, uh, whether it starts with the sperm and the ova, fertilization, implantation, or does it start when the heart starts circulating, uh, beating and circulation starts, uh, or does it start when the fetus begins to look more human, which is 90 days? Or when the fetus kicks in the utero, which is 150 days? Or when the baby takes his first breath, which is after birth? Uh, or when the cord is cut? So there is this debate that is going on about uh, personhood and everyone will choose whatever that is convenient for them. So we want to look at scripture and see whether it has any answers about the beginning of personhood. <clears throat> I believe that life and personhood begins at fertilization because this is the decisive moment when the male and female 
have come together in union, exercising their free wills. This is the moment when a community has been formed of two gametes, male and female, and God who has breathed life into them. Water, whatever happens after fertilization is fate accomplished, mean, merely quantitative. To say that life begins at the moment of its first heartbeat is to be very arbitrary. Now, this is uh, <clears throat> the Christian, the usual Christian understanding. And I agree that as far as the body is concerned, this is where it begins. Uh, knowability as a definition of personhood. Um, you know, no ability. If you can know someone, then he or she is a person. Now, I think this, that is right. But it depends on whose knowability, whether it is man's knowability or is it God's knowability. You know, if it's an anthropocentric knowability, then you can say that the mother does not know her fetus. It's just a, a, you know, some biological thing in the uterus. She really doesn't know the fetus at all. And so the fetus is not a person. Uh, and then you can say the baby and the mother don't really know each other even as soon as the baby is born, it takes several days for the mother to know the baby. And so you could argue and say a newborn baby is also not a person because nobody knows what the newborn baby is thinking or doing or what the being is like. And so uh, this is uh, an anthropocentric knowability. Uh, but I want to emphasize that it is not man's knowability, but God's knowability which defines personhood. Uh, I'm saying that the personhood start personhood starts in the mind of God because in Jeremiah it says the word of the Lord came to me saying before I formed you in the womb I knew you. So God knew Jeremiah before he was actually in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so uh, personhood starts in the mind of God or as, as God speaks, a person takes... Uh, a personhood begins. Uh, you can see that in many places in scripture. In Ephesians, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Again, that means um, that God knew us before the foundation of the world. And that defined us as, that defines us as persons. In Psalms, again, it says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there were none of them. That means even before the days came into existence, even before the creation, uh, my frame was not hidden from God. That means he knew us even before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> These are more references. There are many references in the Bible. Uh, again, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. You know, uh, a baby in the womb is not really a secret. Uh, so this secret must have been before, before uh, the physical ova and you know sperm come together and rot in the lower parts of the earth. That means uh, it was utterly un we utterly unaware of uh, where we were when our substance was known by God. So that was about the definition. Um, in conclusion, I wanted to say that a person is someone who is known by God and not the reverse. If a person does not know God, he is still a person because God knows him. And I'm saying that personhood starts in the mind of God, not necessarily in the uterus. <clears throat> uh, though I, in a secular debate, I would, I would uh, agree to the over sperm, you know, understanding fertilization as a beginning point, because they will not accept the Bible as, uh, as evidence. Uh, but biblically speaking, I think the person who started in the mind of God well before the foundation of the world. Okay, and then the irreducibility of a person. <clears throat> um, you know, dust plus breath of God became a person. Now, uh, hydrogen and oxygen, when they come together, it forms water. But hydrogen and oxygen cannot be more different from water uh, than they are. Hydrogen supports combustion. You know, you can have hydrogen energy. Oxygen also supports combustion. It's, uses, it's being used in rockets. Uh, but both of them, when they come together, it forms a liquid, which is used uh, to you know, put off flames. A product completely different from either oxygen or hydrogen. And so I'm saying that a man cannot be reduced to simply one kilo of salt, three kilograms of calcium, sodium, potassium, and 50 kilograms of water. Because when the breath of God and uh, the dust come together, something absolutely novel happens and a person of infinite worth uh, begins. <clears throat>
Now, uh, the sure way of degrading a person, person is to reduce him or her into its constituent parts. Now, what do I mean? <clears throat> In uh, Velo, for example, um, some often both the husband and wife are working. And so when they get talking, they will say, my washing machine has not come today. That means the maid has not come for work. And so, you know, there'll be a problem. So the maid is reduced to a washing machine. <clears throat> uh, and often, you know, men will say, she has a great body. You're reducing a woman to just a sex object. Uh, and all the doctors know how easily we reduce patients to a commodity. We will say, where is the breast lump or where is the abdominal tumor? Which room is she in, sister? So uh, this sort of reduction is a form of degradation. Uh, Socrates, he, he, he was a very wise man, but uh, he said, had it not been for the children, I would have no use for women. He thought of women only as a, as a, a baby machine. <clears throat> and we can reduce God. We can reduce God to a, an insurance company, you know, just in case he exists, I better, you know, pray, pray or go to church or something. Uh, or simply think of him as a provider is a sure way of degrading him. He wants us to worship him as God, as a person. And by calling people by their unique names, we respect and energize them. You know, when Mary went to the, on, the East, on Easter Sunday, when she went to the tomb, she saw the gardener or whom she thought was the gardener and did not recognize him. But when the gardener of Jesus, when he said Mary, she suddenly came alive. You know, when you call people by their unique names, we, uh, we respect and we energize people. And this is a secret that organizations should learn. Organizations shouldn't be simply employing technicians, you know, some guy who is a, a, a great computer wizard, they are employing people or persons. And doctors need to know that they are not simply treating uh, a, a lump, that there is a person attached to a lump. And friends, we don't have friends just to get help or be to get something from but we need to treat people as friends, as people. And same thing holds true in marriages and in parenthood. And uh, organizations that have treated their employees as persons can release phenomenal creative energy. And there is plenty of evidence that many organizations who have respected their employees as persons rather than just some kind of a talent giver have become more successful than other organizations. 
Okay, and then I want us want us to see the difference between a person and an individual. They are not synonymous. <clears throat> you all know the story of Narcissus. He fell in love with his own image. Uh, there was a beautiful girl, but he had no eyes for her. He kept looking at his own image and admiring, admiring it so much that he forgot to eat and he died of starvation and he became a lily. Of course, this is a, a myth, but then it has a moral. Uh, individualism is, a, is a, a disease that can actually kill. <clears throat> uh, we, are, we are people who are made in the image of the Trinity. We are not made in the image of any one person. And so we are made to be connected to others. <clears throat> uh, and the connections can be, uh, it can grow outwards. It can start with the family and then with friends and then a community and then uh, church and then the nation and international, but we have to be connected if we have to prosper and thrive. An individual is a corruption. An individual is atomized all by himself. He always fights for his rights. The me generation is, uh, you know, characteristic of a, an individual. He wants to be free of everything and everyone. Uh, on the other hand, we see in scripture, Jesus was always connected to Trinity. Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He was conscious of his father. He said, my father and I are one. And then he said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business. Uh, when a son or a daughter tells her parents, this is my life, I will live it as I want it. Seeing she's being an individual. She's not, she's not growing up. She's growing up badly. <clears throat> when a woman says, this is my body, this is my uterus. I can do what I want with it. Even about if I wish, who are you to interfere? Again, she's being an individual. But the fact is that we are very, very interconnected. No man is an island. Whatever happens to one person affects the whole community. Uh, one person, for example, can let's say, smoke and drink, he can do that. He has a right to do that, he says. But the fact is, when he does that, he's role modeling something to the whole community and it affects the whole community. Uh, disconnection with God and with your neighbor is the surest way of becoming an individual and loneliness kills, literally. On the other hand, uh, animals in a zoo 
even if they are kept alone in a zoo, they thrive and they put on weight. <clears throat> on the other hand, prisoners in solitary confinement die, but the animals don't die in solitary confinement. You know, uh, that itself tells us something about human personhood, that people cannot thrive without community. And if they live alone, it will probably kill them. But there are some exceptions. They were desert monks. They were lonely, but they were not uh, utterly lonely. They were in solitude. That means they were connected with God. And because they had communion with God, a lot of these people lived for many years, 15, 20, 30 years, and not only really lived, they wrote extensively. And so uh, this is proof that if you communicate with God, your personhood will thrive and you will be nourished. Even if you don't have a human community around you. <clears throat> and so this is just a thing about one particular cloister, cloisters where people used to be used to live in solitude. I've already said this. I am the bread of life, which means I will nourish your personhood. Actually, very literally. <clears throat> uh, God provides the primary nutrition to the human community. And human community provides secondary nutrition to people. And so it is possible for people to live in a society well, when that society has some communication with God. In other words, if you have a society that is completely cut off from God, uh, then there is no primary nutrition. And then that human community will not be able to sustain in persons and they all become individuals. And there are many studies to show that when community is gone and people become individuals, the social capital drops. And when the social capital drops, people don't cooperate with each other. People cannot trust each other. And when people cannot trust each other and cooperate with each other, civil societies will not be formed. Companies cannot be formed. Trust and associations cannot be formed. Business will suffer and the nation will become poor. So, you know, it has huge implications. Uh, the fact that personhood can be nourished in community 
has huge implications. And church is a place where personhood can be nourished. We are in touch with God and we are in touch with people. And then we begin to trust each other. Then we want to do something with each other. We start organization, we start companies, we start enterprises and the nation grows and the, and, uh, the economy grows. <clears throat> uh, to live in a harmoniously in a community, one has to give and take. It's a, some people think that we just have to give and they don't want to live in a community, but you have to learn to take graciously and you have to give uh, generously. One has to have the courage to accept criticism and change. And this requires maturity. And then the most important of all, you have to learn to forgive. And if you have all these things, people will be able to live in community. And when you are able to live in community, it actually grows the community, makes it richer. Okay, and then I wanted to talk about the principle of intrinsic worth or value. Um, <clears throat> in the secular world, people are often valued based on what they can give to society. And we are all tempted to do that. Uh, we have to fight this temptation. We have to have the eyes to see the worth of people who cannot give anything back to society. That means people who are uh, disabled or people who are emotionally crippled because of their circumstances, uh, maybe drugs or broken families. Uh, so Christian people, have to be different in the sense that they have to see beyond what people can give to the community. They have to be able to see the intrinsic worth of people. Um, okay, uh, personhood blossoms only when it is freed. And this is a very important principle. You know, uh, the secular world wants freedom. Um, and so they want to throw off the shackles of religion because they think religion is enslaving. They want to throw off the shackles of social norms, of uh, parental control, political control, and control from peers they rebel against any kind of control because they want to be free. And I agree that freedom is extremely important. But there is a problem here. The problem is our enslavement is not mainly from without. Our enslavement is mainly from within. Our, our sinful nature actually is what controls us. We are controlled by sin 
and we are our own worst enemies. And this is where we need freedom. A man who knows God gets freedom from the evil within himself. And that freedom is the freedom that will truly make the personhood free. The external norms can always be managed, but the enslavement from within can never be managed by people. Without God's help, we are all completely doomed because what enslaves us is actually from within. And so when persons want to be free of societal norms and all other kinds of norms, we have to remind them that the true enslavement is not from without, that true enslavement comes from within, and that is where they need freedom from. Um, and uh, God respects our free will, and God will not compel us to choose heaven. However much he loves us, he cannot force us to love him. Now that is the very nature of love, that is the nature of personhood. Uh, you cannot compel a girl at gunpoint or a boy at gunpoint to marry you, because that is not really love at all. It will not work. Unless it is a voluntary free will decision, you cannot uh, find love. And so God respects our free will. And, uh, and because of this, he gives us a choice. And we as people have this very important decision to make. Okay, now there are many issues relating to personhood many ethical issues, the abortion debate, issues relating to re reproductive technology, issues concerning euthanasia, uh, issues retaining to resource allocation, uh, pertaining to autonomy and freedom, and issues relating to animal experiments. There are very many more, uh, but I just wanted to talk about animals and personhood. I think people in the, especially from the Indian context would be interested because they believe that they, they you know, animals can become human beings after death and vice versa and so on. So this is an important subject <clears throat> for them. Uh, we know from the creation that animals were created in a radically different way. And then in the Bible, animal killing and killing a man were, uh, had different kinds of punishment, not the same kind of punishment. And there is no word at all in the Bible about redeeming of animals. You know, animals did not there's no what about animal sinning or animals requiring salvation. <clears throat> On the other hand, 
animals animals were sacrificed as uh, for man's uh, sin in the Old Testament. Now, what was required was someone that had no sin. A sacrifice required something that had not sinned. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice because he had no sin. And animals were a suitable sacrifice because they had no sin. And in that sense, they could be used as a metaphor for uh, redemption. Animals do not have a helpmate, only a sexual partner. And then there's the story of you're more valuable than many sparrows. You know, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't worry, you're more, of, you're more value than many sparrows. And it does not mean, you know, a thousand sparrows. It means you are a completely different paradigm. Your value is of a completely different paradigm. And then in the story of the demoniac, we find that uh, to save one man, Jesus was willing to sacrifice uh, so many pigs. <clears throat> and then when person was, personhood is misunderstood, animals get equated with human beings. You know, there are many people, including Peter Singer, who would say that mammals are also persons and they should have rights. And there are people who fight for animal rights. Uh, killing of fetus, people would say a fetus is not a person because the mother does not know the fetus and the fetus does not know the mother. Uh, bestiality, commodification of healthcare, euthanasia, marginalization of the disabled. Uh, there are some dangerous scenarios. Uh, according to a South Korean television network, baby corpses reportedly cannibalized for stamina pills. Chinese pharmaceutical companies are grinding up dead babies into stamina enhancing pills. Uh, companies reportedly buy the corpses, store them secretly in refrigerators, place them in medical drying microwaves, grind them into powder, and so on. Uh, other dangerous scenarios, an institution for the mentally retarded houses more than 100 in inmates. The state is unable to afford the maintenance of so many homes. The minister in one of his visits decides that the state could harvest one kidney, one lobe of the liver, and both fubile from every mentally retarded person as organ donations to help others. Then it would begin to pay for itself. A consent form was given to the mentally retarded, which they promptly signed. Joyside is a newly registered for-profit euthanasia company. They have state-of-the-art techniques for assisting people who wish to die achieve their objective in many diverse and painless and indeed fun ways. In return, they were to sign off their organs for organ donations. 
So uh, these are all some scenarios that can that are beginning to happen and that can happen if the Christian understanding of personhood is completely forgotten. Lastly, this is the city of Fofan, where eating of meat, uh, eating of mammals is banned. All mammals should be baptized and Christian and funeral services should be held. All animal experiments are banned. Old age homes for aging and animals are built. Indeed, we have many in India. Uh, sexual activity be between humans and mammals may not be punishable. Uh, in conclusion, however deformed, however immoral, however brain damaged, however unskilled and unwanted human being may be, he is more than matter, he is more than animals, he is more than angels, and is made for God and in his image, and will enjoy the fellowship of God and his saints with a glorified body and a perfect personhood. <clears throat> Well, we thank you very much, Vinod. We, if you've joined us during this, we've been listening to Vinod Shah speaking about personhood of Christian understanding and uh, a very uh, comprehensive review uh, touching on every element of theology from creation through to redemption. And then, of course, the new heaven and the new earth and new bodies and showing uh, very clearly how human beings are different from every other form of creation and uh, especially even the higher animals. I'm just conscious we've we've not got a lot of time left for discussion, uh, but I wanted just to come back to you, Vinod, with a couple of, of questions. I guess the, the obvious question is to say, uh, so what for us as Christian doctors and dentists, how should a biblical understanding of personhood uh, shape and change the way we practice medicine or dentistry? We <clears throat> touched on a lot of this, but how? Yes. <clears throat> um, I often talk about the invisible people. Uh, people who are not visible to the secular society, in other words, the marginalized, that would include uh, the disabled, that would include uh, <clears throat> people who are not seen entering the healthcare system, people who don't come to the healthcare system because they simply cannot afford to. Um, that includes people who have um, diseases that are stigmatized, HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, leprosy. Um, and that includes obviously uh, people of different ethnicities and minorities who the majority despise. And so uh, as Christian doctors and dentists, we have to proactively seek out these invisible people because 
they are also in God's sight uh, equally important, made in the image of God, have the same personhood. And so uh, that is a responsibility. Our healthcare industry is made to sustain itself. It's made to profit and to grow and to become more prestigious. It is not really made to help nurture and nourish persons. And so we have to speak to the policy makers so that concessions are made uh, and policies are changed and budgets are created so that people from these invisible backgrounds can be admitted into the healthcare system. So it's it's both so it's both the way we treat patients and showing the compassion of Christ, but also being a prophetic voice to power as well to speak on behalf of those who have no voice. Right. <clears throat> And of course, uh, because Christians often have a, a grasshopper understanding of themselves, you know, they, they are very compassionate and all that, uh, but they don't speak to policymakers. They don't think they have the ability to, but I think they often underestimate their power. If, if they do, and they begin to do and write and speak, they can make an impact. And the second thing is that they are often not creative. Christian professionals are, they do their work, they come in time, do their work well, they're compassionate they, and go back in time, but they are not proactively doing something to be more inclusive. You know, people who, who are not necessarily in the system, but who can be brought into the system by a little extra effort, maybe the prisoners or people on the, on the streets and so on. So uh, I think both creativity is required and both the courage to speak to people in authority is also required. And just in, in closing, because we, we're virtually out of time now, but uh, in the West, we have many people who are influenced by a Christian worldview, but don't share our faith. And so they have this idea of care, respect, compassion, responsibility, and so on, and the importance of community. But they would say, well, uh, fetuses and embryos or elderly people with dementia or those who have <clears throat> anencephaly or, or some kind of uh, disorder that's affecting their cognition or ability to communicate they're not really people and so we can uh we can kill them through abortion euthanasia embryocide or whatever uh with impunity because they're not really people now of course people coming from that perspective are not going to be convinced by biblical arguments and quotes from scripture so how would you go about uh, helping someone coming from a secular view like that to to think more deeply about what personhood really is to present a Christian view. 
um, I will tell you what uh, we are doing here in India. <clears throat> uh, the same sort of environment is now uh, exists, exists here in India. We cannot speak about religious things in hospitals to patients. But what we can do and what hospital authorities cannot stop us from doing is uh, praying for patients. <clears throat> we ask patients, do you mind if I pray? And the patient will often say yes. Anyway, in India, they would say yes. And then we pray the whole, anyway, this is what I do in the home care situation. We pray the whole gospel, <clears throat> starting from God loved us and he created us and he died for our sins and he rose again and anyone who believes in him will have salvation and we'll be resurrected. And so we pray the whole prayer and uh, that is one way of circumventing the, the rules, I guess, because we cannot be penalized for that because we are asking a patient if we can pray and patient has said yes, and we we do that. And so, spiritual uh, they accept that you can you can do uh, that some kind of spirituality and counseling is important. So we are able to get away with that. Uh, but how to challenge people about uh, personhood? Now that I think we are not doing enough. Uh, Christian people are not. Uh, the Western secular world is uh, has a very powerful uh, movie industry, has got a powerful uh, media, and uh, there are people in power also are people who are very secular. And so we are up against a huge problem in the West. Uh, I can only say that we need to write more. We need to use the media more often. Uh, and maybe showcase more often. Because sometimes I often feel that arguments don't always convert people. But showcasing compassion often converts. And so uh, I think a little bit more of both is required. Thank you. So it's, it's both words and works, isn't it? It's compassionate care and being a prophetic voice. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Vinod Shah. So it just remains to me to, to thank you, Vinod, again for joining us and to all of you for coming along and uh, being involved in this session. May God bless you and we'll see you again soon.